optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is it an appropriate time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, whether they are from the worlds of athletics, business, strategy of any type or fashion, entertainment or otherwise. This episode is a little bit different. It is not going to be a long-form interview where I dissect and deconstruct a world-class performer, or at least not in the usual fashion. Instead, this is a special edition of The Random Show. I am joined by my usual co-host in this capacity, Kevin Rose, at Kevin Rose on Twitter, serial entrepreneur, world-class investor, and that is not an exaggeration. He's one of the best product guys for those in Silicon Valley or tech and investors I know. What makes him unique perhaps is an unusual combination and that is he's very good at early stage investing, very early stage seed investing, and also very good at the public markets. Uh, And he's also a uh, all-around wild and crazy guy, which makes for a fun conversation. So we go all over the place. We talk about new favorite books, memory training, Uh, multiple wives, or maybe I talk about that, bets for or against virtual reality, and much, much more. So please say hi to us on the socials and enjoy. 
Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to another episode of The Random Show. I think it is episode 477. I'm Tim Ferriss. And I'm Kevin Rose. Thanks for joining us. It's been a while. It has been, to be precise. It has been a long while. Yes. And we are sitting in your new place. Just moved in today. A lot of life changes. Speak about, uh, talking about, um, speaking of, sorry, I've had, I swear I've only had two glasses of wine. Speaking of random show, um, you hit me up today, or last night. I did. And we're like, hey, let's do a random show. And it was like midnight. And I'm like, <laughs> you said on Tuesday. And it was yesterday was Tuesday. I'm like, I'm not getting out of bed <laughs> to, do a, to do a random show. <laughs> so That would have been very random, though. But you meant Wednesday. I, did mean, I did mean Wednesday. And You're in town for one night. That's right. And we're in a just, spot. Uh, it's just a sniper shot in and out. And I'm excited to dig in because we have... A bunch of new interests, but we also have new questions. Yes. Because I realized when I was just developing my Bambi legs in the podcasting and interview game. Episode I, one. I, episode one of the Tim Ferriss show, which we didn't even have a name for at that point, although you nominated Tim Tim Talk Talk. Which I still think that's the best name, and I think thank you should you, your show. Go to hell. Kevin has stuck, <laughs> uh, and people still refer to it as Tim Tim Talk Talk. I see that on Twitter from time to time, and I always <laughs> laugh my ass off every time I see it. Uh Things have uh, hopefully evolved and not devolved, but I remember you giving me so much shit when I asked you, I put together my list of questions and I asked you if you could be a breakfast cereal or if you had to be a breakfast cereal, which would you be? And you're like, oh, it's going to be one of those (laughs) interviews. And I was like, oh, stop busting my balls. I'm nervous already, even though you're my friend. It's my first time recording audio. And uh, so I want to, I'm going to at some point lob some questions at you that I've asked a lot of my other guests that I don't know your answers to. And it sounds like you have some top secret questions to volley yes. on your side. We decided to go before the show, you know, Tim and I spent probably five, 10 minutes putting together kind of a, just a bullet list of outline stuff that we want to talk about. And you mentioned wanting to do those new kind of refreshed questions on me and so, of course, I've got to come back to you and do some on you as well, because, you know, you're always on the interviewing side of this equation. Why not throw some back to you and see what you come up with? Because you, I feel like you grill your guests sometimes. You're like, what would you put on a billboard? And they're like, oh, you know, it's, it's really <laughs> difficult to answer this stuff yeah. in real time. Yeah, some of them so are I'm, really tough I'm in real time. I'm curious to see how you're going to do. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see how well I can tap dance. Uh, I've grown better at the asking, not necessarily the answering of questions, but do you have anything new on your list? And I should also say, just for those people who are wondering at the prep, so we both bullet out a couple of ideas uh, or items that are new for us, whether they're books or gizmos or otherwise, but we don't share those notes with each other beforehand. Otherwise, it would be boring. That's right. So we we tend to leave it to be... uh, just like fresh stuff that we just came up with. Um, it's it's typically stuff that we've used and discovered since the last time we saw each other. That's right. And so I've got I've got kind of three things. You want me to kick it off with the first one? Yes, please. So this one is actually thanks to you. I, I called you on the phone and talked to you about this. The uh, TM meditation. Yeah. So transcendental meditation is a form of meditation that I hadn't actually heard of until. You first brought it up. I have another buddy, Anish, who's been doing it since he was a child. You know Anish. He was at my bachelor party. I do. Um, and then also uh, our mutual friend, Dr. Peter Atia. Um, I was just talking to him. I'm like, hey, what are some great re- ways that you reduce stress in your life? And he's like, oh, I've looked at the literature. Like TM 
he's, he's training it as well. And he's like, you should just go. Um, and he did an introduction to some of the folks over at the, the center. And I was like, okay, well, why don't I go give this a shot? And I, I called you up and I was like, what do you think? And you were like, yeah, go do it. Well, I was introduced to bring it full circle. So of course, uh, Peter's been on the podcast. Yeah. And I was convinced to do my first proper training with TM by two other guests. So it was Chase Jarvis and Rick Rubin. Oh, crazy. I, I effectively asked them the same question that you asked Peter. And I just took a while to, for me to get it through my thick skull that I should try it because of the costs involved and various things. And it's not uh, cheap. It's not cheap. And, uh, I may uh, hopefully collaborate with some folks involved at the higher levels of TM to change that. We will see. Uh, but there, there are some quirky aspects to it, right? I mean, you sent yeah. me a photograph of your my sacrifice, flower, your flowers and fruit, with the comment, "I feel like I'm joining a cult." So I, some so, of it is, is for a secular person, it's a little, it's yeah, a little tough. I mean, here's the deal: like, I grew up <laughs> religious, and I drank the blood of Christ at communion and whatnot, and like did all that stuff. So I'm used to, you know, certain formalities around certain things. <laughs> and, and you know, I go to the introduction meeting, which is free, and you sit down, and you're, like, almost in, like, a church-type setting. And, you know, they're like, hey, like, welcome. They kind of start explaining some stuff. And I'm like, okay, this all sounds great. Everything you're saying sounds great. They're like, here's the cost. I'm like, eh, a little pricey, but if it's going to change my life, whatever. And then... They're like, by the way, on your first day, I want you to bring three pieces of fruit and some flowers for the, like the introduction to like the dude and the <laughs> offering that you must give him on the table. When we burn incense. And I was like, what? And it's by the little... dude, you mean there's a large mural of uh, the dude from the Big Lebowski. That's right. <laughs> no, it's by, by the founder. I never recall the founder's name. Uh, Maharishi. Maharishi. Yes. So, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to buy in if it's any kind of religious thing. Daria's making faces. <laughs> she is, she's making faces. But essentially, um, are we allowed to talk about this, by the way? This is the other thing. They told us, like, we couldn't talk about any of this stuff. Uh, Will they I, sue us? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, ultimately, we're, this is like a, uh, I would say, a ringing endorsement of the benefits of TM, probably. But there's some weird stuff. Yeah, let's call a spade a spade, and people have talked about it before. So. Yeah, so basically, you go into a little room, <laughs> you do swing the, a dead cat over you your head your, thirteen you times. Little, no, you don't do that. I'm you kidding. You do your little ritual sacrifice thing. It's fine. I gave fruit, <laughs> and the you know, that lasts like thirty seconds, and then they give you a mantra. So a mantra for people that don't know, there's a few different types of meditation. Uh, the 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 type that I'm used to is the Headspace variety, which is the app, which is mindfulness. Meaning, you sit there, you follow your breath. You know, you the attention is directed at the at the in and out flow of your breath, and that's kind of it. So, mantra based meditation is taking a word that doesn't mean anything. And you repeat it over and over and over in your head. And so you sit there for 20 minutes and you take this word and it's just like, let's say it's cheeseburger. And it's just like cheeseburger, 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 like over and over. And then eventually you enter this somewhat hypnotic state. Did you find that that's kind of where it took you as well? It, it does, or it can, I should say. And you can think of it at least, and I'm sure there are people who are experts in this who, who take issue with the analogy, but you can think of it almost as... 
a white noise machine for a waking state. So if you use a white noise machine to help you get to sleep, let's say, uh, then this would be the equivalent for helping you to achieve a sort of alpha brainwave level of relaxed attentiveness that you that some people might associate with flow. So it That's does right. help you to get into a hypnotic state. And, and what it, where I find it very helpful is if you feel compelled when you've practiced or attempted meditation in the past to kind of swat your thoughts away as if they were like flies buzzing in your face, it can get very, very frustrating. And by repeating a mantra, you are effectively overriding a lot of the internal dialogue or monologue. Right. Uh, but yes, you can get into a very, very, uh, altered state of sorts, enhanced state. Yeah. So, you know, what's funny is it's a four day, uh, training course and I did the first day and it was literally the fruit sacrifice, then the introduction of the mantra. And by the way, the reason I said it's cheeseburger, cheeseburger is like, they give you this mantra and you're not allowed to tell it to anyone. It's, it's like private just to you. Later, I looked them up online and there's like, you know, 15 of them. So you can just guess which one mine is. It starts with the M. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but essentially, um, you do that. And then I was a little upset. I finished day one and I was like, why did I, why did I really pay all this money for this? Like, why this, do I have to say poontang, poontang? Yeah, over again? like I could just like, <laughs> I literally read it on the internet. I can just do this. And I was like, you know what? Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to go back for day two. And I went back for day two and it all made sense after day two. And I stayed for the entire four days. And the reason being is it's not... And to be clear, when you say four days, at least when I went through the process, you're really, it's like an hour to two hours oh, yeah. a day. I'm talking an hour and a half per day. Yeah. So, um... And day two, it's funny because you learn it and it's really easy, but day two uh, through four is all about helping you get over the little hurdles that appear throughout the entire process. And it's funny how they they occur for everyone. Um, It sounds really simple, but as you're doing the mantra, certain things happen. Like all of a sudden for me, I was doing the mantra and I started syncing the mantra with my heartbeat. And I'm like, whoa, that's weird. And then, of course, that distracts me, takes me away from the mantra. And then I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm kind of frozen. And so imagine like that, but with there's probably 15 different things that you'll run into that are distractions. And they teach you how to kind of come back to the mantra, how to embrace that stuff. And, and it's, it's really, that's where the value is. In it's the practical, it. tactical stuff right. where, it, where there are, I think, two chief benefits, at least for me. One is you have someone holding you accountable to meditate for two sessions in between the in-person meetings. Yeah. In other words, there is a consequence, i.e. embarrassment, to not performing the assigned work. That's Whereas right. when I tried meditation in the past, I'd buy a book. I'd be like, 90% of this makes no sense. I don't understand. But here's a little sidebar. Fine. I'll follow my breath. And then I do it. And I'm like, am I doing this right? I don't know. I have all these thoughts. I'm no good at this. I'm losing at meditation. I quit. Right. And after a few days, I would stop doing it. But when you have someone you're going to meet with each day who is going to want in that hour and a half to talk about your last two sessions, do post-game analysis, and help you with the issues that came up, right. you feel compelled given that social pressure of sorts. Yeah, it was great. I mean, and the sunk cost, quite frankly. I think that if I were to point to a benefit of the payment, although I hesitate to do that, but one of the benefits is it's you, you in a beneficial way, succumb to the sunk cost fallacy. You're like, well, I already paid for it, so might as well do it. Yeah, and, and, and honestly, I asked a ton of questions, got a lot of value out of it. So yeah, that like, was great. And it's been about a month and a half now. 
I've been practicing and doing 40 minutes of meditation every day, uh, seven days a week. Two sessions split into 20 minutes. Two sessions split into 20 minutes. And my wife, like Daria says, she notices a big difference. I don't know. I mean, I feel a little bit more relaxed. And I certainly, like for me, my pressure points are if too much is going on in my life, meaning if I have a lot of travel combined with work, combined with board meetings, combined with fundraising or whatever's going on, when I, I hit a certain critical mass, I kind of like break down a little bit. And that's, that's where it's just too much going on. Why are you laughing? No, I'm laughing because this doesn't happen to anyone else. I don't know what, why you have this particular defect. I mean, no, I'm joking. I know it happens to you too. So, um, <laughs> this is, this is seriously, but it, that hasn't happened as much. And I've been able to weather the storm a lot better. I don't, I'm not experiencing any type of, effect other than just like I will do the meditation and I will come out of it in a kind of slight daze. In fact, they tell you when you finish the session, the 20 minute session to spend three minutes, um, just kind of slowly reintroducing yourself to the world. <laughs> it's like coming up from scuba diving. They're right. like, okay, hold on. You got to equalize. Exactly. And it's funny because I, I said, well, one time I didn't have that three minutes. I just got up and went and I felt a little weird afterwards. And, and the, the, the lady at the, that was instructing me said, actually, if that's going to happen and you know you have to run, you have to go out to someplace, cut back the meditation time and still spend that three minutes because it's really important. You go pretty deep inside yourself and you're kind of a little dazed and people can get headaches or all kinds of things that they come out too fast. And the, the, uh, the very... <laughs> Daria, if they come out too fast, Daria's pointing to a shirt that she had printed for herself, which says that's what she said. And that's uh, why I married my wife. <laughs> she makes those kind of jokes. And let's, uh, but let's, let's make it more concrete. Uh, we were just at dinner. We had a really nice dinner together. And Daria said, you have been a rock. Like there's this, the, 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 in the best way possible, meaning very stable and a dramatic difference. And I think that for, for someone who is doing that type of work, it can be, in some, not all cases, difficult to discern the progress because it's like if you're, you know, gaining, uh, say, a half pound of fat a month, and then like, you know, a decade later, you're going to be pretty fat, but uh, you won't I mean, notice like a year it. later. You'd be pretty fat too. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 that also. But the the, the point being is a terrible comparison, but it's like <laughs> the boiling frog. But like, you don't notice the improvement because you're exposed to it every day, right? And I noticed a big change in my sleep in particular. Mm -hmm. The onset to sleep mm -hmm. has changed dramatically. Uh, I will be the first to admit I am not as consistent at all with afternoon sessions. So it's mostly for me first thing in the morning. Yeah. And uh, this particular type of meditation, I would say, is probably not for everyone. But it uh, can be very useful for some people. I think the social accountability, the the camaraderie and also teacher student relationship was mm -hmm. what was most important for me. Yeah. I, you know, I like that. I really do like the foundation that they put in place in that they, once you pay for the session, it, it is, uh, do you remember how much it was? I think it was like $1,200, something like something that. Something like that. It's, it's the cost has decreased over time from like 1500 to 1200. Yeah. But you get and to go so back whatever you want. So like the teacher was like, courses. yeah, come back anytime. You don't have to pay anything, hang out. And I'll help you if you had run into any more roadblocks. Like, they were really yeah. friendly people. So let me give a couple of suggestions. The first is, and the TM folks are probably going to hate me for this, but you can experiment with this. 
right? Using some type of mantra. And I hate that term. I think it's very loaded, but you could use a word that is say like a two syllable word, like nature, right? Like nature, nature. Well, it's not nature. supposed to mean anything. It's though. not supposed to mean anything, but let's, let's not let when I like uh, perfect be the Om en- is enemy. a very common you mantra. You can use Om also for, for some people who are allergic to yoga, like I was for a long time, they'll have negative associations. So you could use that. Um, I've actually, even though I do have a mantra, I've used nature, that exact example. What does your mantra start with? I am not going to tell you. You can say the letter it starts with. I'm going to lie to you. It starts with Z. <laughs> I'm such a hyper-analytical person. I enjoy having a few superstitions that you I hold on to. You Kool-Aid. You totally drink no, the Kool-Aid. No, I also don't like using red pens for like... Are you serious? Signing anything. Yeah, I won't use red pens. I don't like cheersing. Who even has I don't a red like pen? cheersing with water. Uh, I don't like cheersing with water either. That's just weird. <laughs> Right. I'm not doing it for a superstition but, reason. It just right. So, so a couple of alternatives for people. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> what she was saying, I, I'm doing it for superstition. I just don't like the idea of like everyone drinking alcohol and I'm not, I don't have a glass of alcohol. No, it's not superstition. Anyway. <laughs> it's pure heart it's science. Like I like alcohol. <laughs> I want a glass of alcohol. <laughs> okay. We're, we, we won't belabor that, but for people, for people who are interested in experimenting with this kind of thing, you can sort of bootleg an imperfect variation of it and experiment. I do think that people would derive benefit from it. But like you said, having someone who can answer very specific questions like, okay, you travel a lot. What are you going to do if room service knocks on the door, comes in when you're in right. the middle of meditation? Like what are the options? What is optimal? Et cetera, et cetera. And totally. going through all those contingencies is very valuable. Well, but, I mean, you, but, you, you but you pointed out one, Headspace has worked tremendously yeah. well for uh, uh, a lot of my friends and a lot of people listening to this, for that matter. And Calm is another one that's worked Calm well. is another. People, there are others who have enjoyed, and I've enjoyed, quite frankly. I, I'm not a purist about it. I've used guided meditations from uh, Tara Brock, who was introduced to me by Maria of Brain Pickings. Popova, Popova, Maria, I need to, I need to do a refresher on your name pronunciation. I apologize. What was it? Popova. There we go. I'm being, we need Daria here as like a consistent <laughs> fact checker. And, uh, the guided meditations by Tara Brock, B-R-A-C-H are fantastic. She's also been on the podcast. Sam Harris has some great guided meditations. Uh, I think it's samharris.org. And there are many options out there for starting your day off in a relaxed, non-reactive, calmly effective state. Mm -hmm. And those are some of the options, I would say. Yeah, I mean, one thing I will add on to that, and I I agree with you, I I, I would say if you're going to try mantra-based meditation, try to pair up with a friend or someone that you know that's done it before that can help you get over those hurdles if you don't want to pay for the, the class. The nice thing about paying for the class, the only nice thing about paying that much money is it's it truly is a forcing function to make you take it seriously. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to day two because I was kind of pissed. Yep. And I was like, why did I pay this much for it? I'm going to get something out of it, you know? And then I went, I was like, okay, actually, I get it. Yep. You, know, you know what I mean? Like, this is the way with well, all courses. It, well, it's true with a lot of skills also that are very frustrating in the beginning, right? Like, sure. let's take... Uh, slacklining as an example. Oh God, I tried that at your house. So slacklining is difficult and most people completely lose interest and quit after the first or second sessions because neurologically there's not, they, they're not capable of the neurological and muscular control and coordination. Yeah. You need a certain, this is my, at least. I mean, you saw my, me. My, yeah. You, yeah. Your like legs just having go, seizures. Yeah. Like, so, so you require a certain number of sleep cycles and as far as I can tell, to sort of consolidate this like procedural knowledge, right? 
meditation in this particular case, I think is very, very similar. It's like going out and snowboarding and like, I don't know of anyone first day snowboarding. Who's like, that was so much fun. Right, totally. You just eat shit and you catch edges and smash time. your head on the slopes or your ass and tailbone for the entire time. Right. Right. And if, if in the world of meditation, that's where 95 plus percent of people quit. Yep. But if they were forced to do five days, they would, they would see the potential, right? That's they would right. have one good run or one good stretch, and they'd be like, okay, now I'm hooked. A that's lot right. like surfing. That, that, that's why I like the Take 10 from Headspace, Yeah, where they give you 10 days, 10 minutes a day. That was the first time where I got through all 10 days, and I was like, ah. It was about day eight where I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah. I'm coming out of this more relaxed. I'm feeling stronger as an individual after I do this. So anyway, we don't have to talk about meditation the entire time. Yeah, last but- thing I would say is it's it's very similar to physical training for non-reactivity. So if you're interested and have been interested in the stoic philosophical uh, episodes that have been on this podcast before related to Seneca and so on, uh, a number of episodes by Ryan Holiday, if that interests you as an operating system for for thriving in high-stress environments, that meditation is sort of the one of the found, or mindfulness, which both terms bother me, but that type of non-reactivity, training that mentally as you would train yourself physically, is a foundational skill, a meta skill that allows uh, all the other pieces of the puzzle to function well. Yeah. Uh, all right. Any th- what's, uh, what's next? Yeah, that was mine. What's yours? Uh, what's mine? Well, I'll give a couple of specifics. Uh, one is a fiction book that I just finished, and I and I said fiction with that particular emphasis because I've almost always been a nonfiction snob in the sense that I've taken a very hoity-toity position with fiction, which is well, if I just want to make stuff up, I can do that myself. I, I want to get something. Want to get something concrete out of this. If I'm going to invest like the time, time into reading a goddamn book, it needs to be valuable actionable takeaways, this, that, and the other thing. Yes. I've, I've realized a few errors in that thinking. Uh, the first is that uh, just like, as, as is the case with movies, there are movies for entertainment. There's movies for, there, there, are, there are movies or TV shows just for complete stress relief, right? Like a Dumb and Dumber or something like that, which are brilliant in their own way. And then there are documentaries that you might watch, like Fog of War, to learn something or two. And uh, I think that's very true with reading. Not only that, but that you can better remember and incorporate some of the lessons from fiction because there are stories well well told and we are programmed to be story-remembering machines. Uh, The truth and the truths that are embedded in fiction uh, often are more utilitarian than the the dense nonfiction that you're not, that is just going to fall through your brain or out of your brain, like sand through the fingertips. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been my experience. So uh, I've, I've actually realized that fiction can have not only a rejuvenating, relaxing effect by turning off your problem solving apparatus, but you can actually incept yourself or embed truths that are helpful. And uh, one book that, that was actually recommended by uh, our mutual friend, Chris Saka, who was, who's been on this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, on track to be, or if not already, the most successful venture capital, uh, venture capitalist of all time based on his first fund. The novel is How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. I think I'm getting the title right. And uh, I'm blanking on the author's name, uh, Pakistani author. 
That's, that's as I remember it. And it is a fascinating novel. It's beautifully written. And the I've never seen such incredibly glowing reviews of any book. I mean, it's, it's just uh, it, it woven together in such a powerful way. And what makes it very, very unique is the voice that is used and the, the perspective. So the entire book is written from first person. What I mean by that is it's like you awake to pain in your left eye, you're laying down under your mother's cot with your head on the dirt. Oh, I like this. This sounds yeah. cool. And I, I was told about this by Chris. It who sounds lo- like a video game almost. It does. And Chris uh, told me about this, and I thought to myself afterwards, I should, really th- I should really read that. And the second thought was that conceit, like that way of, of, of writing the book will be really fascinating and cute for like 10 pages, and then it's going to drive me insane. Right. And it didn't at all. You just seamlessly become this character. And it, uh, I, I don't want to just kind of spoil it, but it, it goes, it's, and it's written as a parody of a self-help book, hmm. which is awesome and hilarious. And there's a lot of truth and a lot of sort of timeless wisdom embedded in this book. Is it on Audible or just? Uh... Oh, I'm sure it is. Thank you. Yeah, there we go. Thank you, Daria. How to Get Filthy Rich and Rising to Asia, a novel, uh, Mohsin Hamid, M-O-H-S-I-N, last name, H-A-M-I-D. The reason why we're not getting our facts right is I have no internet at the house right now. Yeah, so Daria's and, and, like so looking here, things up on her phone. And here is the quote, and there are many like this, from Michiko Kakutani of the New York Times. Audacious Hamid reaffirms this place as one of his generation's most inventive and gifted writers. It's a beautifully written book. So cool. if people are looking for a, a shift in the gears, perhaps a break from the relentless pursuit of dry facts, then I think this is a, a fantastic way to spend a few days. I got so into this. I read this book in maybe three days tops. I think two days probably read it in a weekend. It's uh, it's, it's fantastic. So that would be uh, the most recent read that I'm into. I'll bring up one other one. That's really weird or maybe uh, an odd, uh, an odd choice and an impulsive purchase, which is a book of poetry. I'm not a poetry reader. And I was uh, in a Barnes and Noble at Union Square in New York City, and there was a there was a a very, really thin collection of poetry sitting there called uh, I might need Dari again. I think it's Night with Exit Wounds, and uh, I think the author is Ocean Vuong. That's I'm a pro- great title, by the way. Oh, it's fantastic. That's yeah. what caught me. And the last name I'm pretty sure is Vietnamese V U O N G, and yeah, so I got it right. It's a night with exit wounds. And I was like, whoa. Night sky with, night sky with exit wounds. Thank you. And I opened up this book. It's very small. And I started reading one poem in the morning when I wake up and one at night. Or if I feel stressed, I use it just like I use fiction to short circuit the pro-con hyper-analytical what-if brain that can drive me completely bonkers. And it works, works really well. Now I will warn people what I didn't know about this and I'm not, I, I don't think it would have affected my purchase, but 
this author is very gay and very explicit. So there's some pretty <laughs> hardcore action uh, in this <laughs> in this book. So if I you're reading this. along, if you're reading along and uh, and you're like, whoa, hey now, like that Tim's will into some crazy shit. That will probably happen a few times, but uh, the language and some of the poems I don't like at all. And that's okay, but like every third or fourth I read, and this is a first for me, the the wording is so evocative of unusual imagery, like the night sky with exit wounds, that it twists my brain. It's almost like mental yoga. It's it, because my brain struggles to piece together an image that makes sense. And a lot of these poems don't seem to make a lot of sense, but there are four or five turns of phrase that stretch my ability to visualize in such a way that I find it just opens doors to perception or gives me other lenses through which I can view the rest of my day. Oh, sweet. Sounds odd, I know, but, and I've never really read or pursued poetry in this way, but uh, very impulsive chancing, uh, very impulsive purchase based on chancing across this book. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. So I think it's going to reignite my interest in certain types of poetry, like those that were introduced to me by Rolf Potts, the writer uh, and author of Vagabonding, one of my favorite books. Uh, so the, that's a to be continued. I, I don't think I will become a poet. I don't have sort of the uh, hubris to think that I have the capacity for that. But uh, also the way this book is formatted is so odd. As someone who's accustomed to narrative fiction or nonfiction because the words will be scattered around the page for one poem. Then the next will be an unbroken paragraph of text with no punctuation. Hmm. And it's just so jolting that I find it serves as a pattern interrupt for me. Just kind of like, it's almost like an art in a way. Yeah. I totally a little piece of art on every page. It it absolutely is. Uh, So that's, um, that's been a, an interesting experiment, an intended experiment of mine recently. That's awesome. Um, the last I would say uh, is, uh, maybe not the last, but probably would jump into some questions after this, is that I am going to be, as promised, uh, donating at least $100,000 to psychedelic research at top universities this year, 2016. And uh, I've already raised... I think it was 90 something thousand dollars for Johns Hopkins and looking at the use of psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. It's depression that has not been addressable by any conventional means. And I'm going to be doing more work uh, and funding research. Uh, So thank you, first and foremost, everybody who contributed to that campaign. It was a huge success. Things are already underway. Very excited about what will be discovered that can be used in that trial. What is that? Give me the the quick 30 seconds for people that aren't familiar with this. Like, what is the trial? What are you testing? Um, I I get that it's, it's depression that can't be treated with anything else, but what, what does the actual trial look like? What do they receive? So this, the structure of the trial. So if if I will, if people want to read all the details, they can go to crowdrise.com forward slash Tim Ferriss. Uh, the trial has actually been upgraded. So what happened, it, it will be relatively small sample size. So if I've, I'm pulling this from memory, but I think it's six to 12 people. Can I be one of the... <laughs> you, you, unfortunately not, unless you want to move to Baltimore and fill out a very long questionnaire and qualify for it. But the uh, the purpose is to determine 
whether as I again I'm pulling this from memory so I encourage people to check sure. out the website a single or several administrations of standardized psilocybin um, and if I had this is again totally guessing but if I guessing probably 0.25 to 0.35 migs per kigs milligrams per kilogram which would translate to what would generally be considered a heroic dose uh, and if I'm getting this wrong then you can go to my blog and leave a comment and let me know but uh, to see the the effects measurable effects and persistence of effects of psilocybin uh, in patients who have not responded chronic depression that has not been addressable or treatable with other pharmaceutical or therapeutic means Mm -hmm. and they will be also using uh, again pulling from memory this was a few months ago uh, fMRI and other imaging tools to look at, uh, to try to determine how, if there is a demonstrable and statistically significant effect, uh, how psilocybin has this particular effect. Mm -hmm. And there is, there is a good science and more science on the way, uh, to indicate that there are some incredibly powerful applications of psilocybin, for instance, in the treatment of different types of addiction. And it's mm-hmm. not a panacea. It can't be used for everything. But in terms of uh, nicotine addiction or alcoholism, uh, tremendously effective, uh, at least based on the sort of preliminary data that we have thus far. So when you're uh, administering this psilocybin to someone, I mean, can I, was, I finish one thing? Yeah, yeah. Go so for the it. the purpose of me bringing it up was not to say, "Hey guys, I'm donating a bunch of money to psilocybin. Please uh, give me a gold star." It was to say that I'm doing a second campaign. Oh, sweet! And I'm going to be instead of using crowdfunding because I want, as every everyone listening who's a long term listener knows to run an experiment. I want, to, I want to figure out not only what works in the scientific arena with these compounds or not, but what are the most effective uh, non-traditional ways of fundraising for scientific studies. So I'm going to be, uh, and have already designed and will be selling a number of themed t-shirts that should be available by the time you hear this. And uh, you can check those out by going to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash mushroom, <laughs> uh, which is traditionally where one finds psilocybin. Uh, not all mushrooms, so don't go out foraging yourself. That's a good way to get dead. But uh, yeah, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash mushroom. And I'm, I'm curious to see if merchandising is a more efficient way to raise, say, $100,000 for scientific uh, research than crowdfunding, and in turn comparing those to the the usual approach, which is a director of a de- of development for say fill in the blank university or fill in the blank nonprofit has a dinner at someone's house where they invite a bunch of muckety mucks and then they have one on one conversations infused with a lot of wine right. to convince people Everyone to donate X amount of dollars. To 25 grand and that's, right. that's what you hope for. Or you try to land a whale, right? Right. And I want to see if there are more elegant ways of doing that. Yeah. The t-shirt like, looks pretty cool. You're wearing it right now. Yeah, I'm wearing, awesome. I'm wearing one of the shirts right now. It's very comfortable. I, uh, I am... I, I I spent a disturbing amount of time picking out the materials for these shirts. Just a real stickler. It's always bugged me when uh, I let me give two examples. So I've seen some shirts I would have been totally down to wear that are now these are from say South by Southwest where like every startup is giving away free shirts, which is generally a waste of money. By the way, startups, but 
Some of them are so comfortable that I've worn ridiculous shirts just because right. they're a good material. The problem and, but, I have is they then, always give but, you extra large, But though. they give you, like, extra large moo-moo shirts yeah. with, and, like, and a if you're not 20 by 20-inch logo that makes the front all stiff and plastic. It's just like, who is going to wear that? Yeah. You tried to cut corners to make a, like, a, a minimally expensive shirt, and as a result, you wasted all of it, right? So it's like you spent whatever it is. I'm making these numbers up, but, like, you spent... Five dollars or like two dollars a shirt. It's more like ten. But right. Yeah. So you spent like ten dollars a shirt. You did a thousand shirts to because you didn't want to spend fifteen thousand. And now that ten thousand is going to be entirely wasted because right. no one's going to wear it. Whereas you could have just spent fifty percent more and actually have some measurable ROI of some type. Anyway, sorry, it's a pet peeve. I fucking <laughs> hate. I am. So, I have no fashion sense. I wear a lot of t-shirts. I happen to. I think a lot about t-shirt comfort. I have a question about mushrooms. Yes. So you know the typical college Kevin, like you know that has experience with mushrooms is, you know, you get a chocolate, you get a bag, something like that. When you do these trials, how do they? How do they measure this? Are they grinding up mushrooms and weighing them out? Like, how do they actually it's, administer? It's, so um, my understanding is that it's synthesized. Okay. It could be extracted, but this is actually one of the largest constraints. I mean, with a compound that is effectively as tracked and regulated as, like, plutonium, <laughs> it's scheduled in the same class as cocaine and heroin. So it is extremely difficult to get the approvals uh, on many different levels, including, you know, IRB for human trials to initiate this type of research. But let's just say you get all the approvals and I'm making these numbers up. I, I wish I had a few people here to help me with accuracy, but l- let's just sit for the sake of argument, say that you get the approvals and then you want to get say, f- uh, five grams of psilocybin. It's something crazy, like $15,000 a gram to get a hold of it because there are no economies of scale since the, since the, who's the, growing it, the research it's is not being grown. It's all synthesized. synthesized or extracted. I don't know specifically I should, but the, uh, so there's a nonprofit, pretty sure it's a 501 C three called, um, Oh man, Daria, maybe if you could help me out here, I think it's USONA, U S O N A, or maybe USANA, uh, which has, I believe they're behind this has purchased a very large quantity in bulk so that they can then distribute at cost to researchers. It's actually a really brilliant approach. So, and doing this all through legitimate legal means. So they have all the necessary clearances. But what this does is it, remo- it removes the, one of the largest constraints currently, which is a capital constraint. Right? Universities... Uh, fundraising, fundraising has to be allocated. If you have a six-person study and it's going to cost whatever it is, an additional 50 to 100 grand, even if all your research is well-planned, even if you get all of the proper boxes checked, if you don't have the money, you don't have the money. Yeah. So this will, in part, remove that limitation. So it, it should greatly improve the... Uh, the number of researchers who are uh, performing studies uh, using psilocybin, which is very exciting. That's great. Yeah, the first time I'd read about it being used in research was probably about a, six months to eight months ago. There was a, a study that was done. I don't know if you heard about this in New York, actually. This, this 
this kid that was um, actually studying to become a doctor came down with cancer. And he was having absolutely horrible anxiety. And he knew how to check himself because he was pre-med. And so he was like rubbing his lymph nodes all the time and like really freaking out to the point where the doctors were like, you need to stop rubbing your lymph nodes. He was causing rashes where he was rubbing them to check for cancer, like just went off the deep end. And they, they had this study. He took part. He swallowed these, these capsules or whatever. They had the psilocybin and knocked out his anxiety a hundred percent. He's, he's even though he still had, at the time, like stage four cancer, mm-hmm. he was just okay with dying at that point. Well, this is where I, this is one of the areas that is uh, very active. I mean, very <laughs> being relative to such a controlled substance is end of life anxiety or mm-hmm. depression uh, for as, as in one instance, uh, terminal cancer patients. And so th- there's, there's actually a very good article written some time ago uh, by Michael Pollan called The Trip Treatment, which was in The New Yorker, very much worth reading, and talks a good deal about this. Uh, so that that is one type of study that I'm looking to and will be funding more of. And there are actually great. two on deck. And I think it's very important to fund studies that are easily defended at this point, at this nascent stage of research with an a very unfairly uh, scheduled compound, you have to really be on the up and up and be on best behavior and have as many sort of insurance uh, assurances and insurances as possible to ensure that uh, you can defend a study, not just scientifically, but politically, right? Mm-hmm. So these, these particular demog- uh, populations uh, in the early stages are important to choose wisely. And it's very hard to say like, fuck the cancer patient who's going to die. Right. <laughs> like let that guy have as much, have, have incredible anxiety and depression. Very, very hard to attack that. And similarly, you know, I find it very compelling to look at the uh, treatment resistant depression, right? Something that has not responded to other medical options yeah. to date. Or, well, I think you can or, use, or veterans with PTSD. Don't you th- feel like you can use kind of marijuana as a template here? Like they're, they've been very successful at creating cannabis-related compounds to treat and help cancer patients with pain and other things. That was yep. kind of like the foot-in-the-door strategy to kind of open the door to further research potentially, and other things. Potentially, definitely. And I've, and I've spoken with... Uh, all the, I've spoken with some people who have, have had very deep involvement on the uh, sort of political and legislative side with cannabis. But yes, I do think there are lessons to be learned, both things to do and things not to do. Yeah. Uh, so that is, uh, that's something that I continue to be very passionate about. Uh, so if, if you want some super comfy, they'll make your nipples hard, but in a good way, t-shirts <laughs> go to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash mushroom. And, uh, one is very subtle. One is not so subtle, and you can uh, you can decide Sweet. if you want if you want to sport some team colors. And uh, all of the proceeds, I'm not keeping any of it. All of my proceeds, 100, percent are going directly to research. Uh, so that uh, is something I'm very much looking forward to. Awesome. All right. So I have one quick little book, and then we can move into the Q and A. Does it sound good? Let's do it. All right. So the book that I'm halfway through right now, and I hate to to recommend something when I'm only halfway through it, but I'm really enjoying it so far is called uh, moonwalking with Einstein. 
Uh, Have you read it? I haven't, but I know a good I know a good deal about it. Joshua Four. Yeah, so it's essentially he was a writer that eventually went on to well, he was he was covering um, national uh, memory champions, and so he was assigned this beat. And he thought he was just going to write a single article about these memory champions, and then he got pulled into actually performing and learning the tricks of the trade to become. Memory champion. Now, memory champion includes things like memorizing a sh- the order of the cards in a shuffled deck. That's right. In or like- a po- unpublished poem handed to you. Um, names and faces of like fifty some people. They hand you like like these cards with names and faces, and you get like a minute to memorize yeah, I think, all of them. Uh, digit strings, maybe. Dig- uh, yeah, random strings of uh, digits. Uh, just it's it's insane stuff. That for someone like me that has a really horrible memory was like attracted to this book. And so, you know, kind of where I'm at right now, they talk about this idea. uh, I'm sure you've heard this before of a memory palace. Do you know much about this? I know all about it. Okay. So what is the the loci technique? Yeah. Give your your take on it. I'm curious. So a memory palace, I used to be really, really into this stuff. And also, I don't know if he's popped yet up yet in the book, but Ed Cook, who's the coach in... Moonwalking with Einstein, or at yes. least one of the coaches, is a very close friend of mine. No way. Yeah. And, That's amazing. And he has been on the podcast talking about memory stuff. Are you serious? Yeah. Absolutely. How did I miss that episode? That's oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. He's great. And we did it when uh, I was on the West Coast and he was in London. So he was he had plenty of booze. It was great. And he's hilarious. <laughs> he's a hilarious Brit to start with. They talk with. about them drinking in the episode oh, and going it's out. no joke. And like using it to hit on girls and stuff by memorizing. I mean, Ed is hilarious. So you should definitely check out the episode. But he, uh, so the, the Memory Palace. Memory Palace has been used for ages in, in one form or another in many different cultures. And in, unless I'm uh, getting this wrong, It's also called the loci technique, which means location. And the way it's used is very simple. You have a predetermined location or route that you are familiar with. That's right. And you can then, in the process of giving yourself a tour of this location in a predetermined, uh, say, clockwise fashion Mm -hmm. around the the perimeter of the inside of a concert hall or walking from your front door to your favorite coffee shop where you pass 16 different buildings and a bunch of different landmarks and so on, you can place items that you want to remember along that route in a particular order. Right. And that allows you to do some very interesting things. Not only can you remember things by using imagery, which we're, we're definitely visual creatures, you can also recall them out of order. So somebody right. could give you, and let me get, let me take one step further. So if you wanted to remember, I used to do this as a party trick in college. I was really into this stuff for a, for a very brief flash in time. I, I was a neuroscience major. I was very interested in how to stretch the capacity of cognition. And you, what you can do is take the abstract and convert it into the concrete. Ideally, into the form of images. And you can do that with, uh, with numbers. For instance, you could take the numbers from one to a hundred, right? So one, two, three, da, da, da. Then you have like 21, 73, whatever it might be. Convert the numbers zero to nine. So zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine into specific letters. All right. So let's just say zero is S or Z. One is T or D, which both have one downstroke, right? Three is M, three, three downstrokes. 
Four is R, let's just say, like four, last letter R. Right. Okay, and so on. And then let's just say you decide well in advance that uh, that 12, as an example, is 10, right? So T and then N, two downstrokes. So 10. And so anytime you have a 12, it's automatically 10. And maybe that's the tin man. All right. And so let me show you where this goes. So let's just say you have, um, you are, this is what I used to do. You have a, a route from your front door to your coffee shop and somebody gives you a, a, a $1 bill, $5 bill, 10 and a 20. And you say, okay, I'm going to memorize the serial code numbers on all of these and give them back to you. The way you would do that is what the way I did it at least is I would take, I would take pairs uh, of numbers and go in fours. So let's say my first stop, I walk out the door and there's a, there's a yellow fire hydrant. That's the first kind of landmark that I pass. So if, if the first four numbers are like one, two, just making this up, like um, K's, uh, I'm sorry, seven, zero. All right, I'm making that up. So the reason I said K is that seven is a K and then zero is S or Z, like I said. So one, two, seven, zero. All right, so 10, I have 10 man. Seven, zero, I'm just making this up. Let's say it's, okay, Kaz would be one, right? So Kaz, in my mind, I associate with this guy named Bill Kazmaier, who was the world's strongest man champion for ages. Just a complete beast. I know what he looks like. So now I have the Tin Man and Kazmaier, Bill Kazmaier, Kaz, fighting around this right. yellow fire hydrant. Okay, now I have, my, I have four numbers. Boom, I can move on right. to the next one. And by doing that, you, know, you can get to the point very, very quickly where you're memorizing 100 plus random numbers at a time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really incredible. So I'll give you my very, my very first exercise in the book that I, that I came up, up upon is that it's the same idea. This time you picture your childhood house and you, everyone tends to know their childhood house pretty well um, or a location that you know quite well. You've lived there for a long time. And they start you off at the sidewalk. So you're standing on the sidewalk right by your mailbox. And so you think you're going to put an item down right there. And so in this case, he wants you to memorize like 15 different items on a grocery uh, shopping list. And the first thing is um, pickled garlic. And so you put a glass of pickled garlic right there when you're walking in right on the corner. You visualize the glass. You visualize how it tastes in your mouth. Um, the logo on the outside, the type of screw down cap that it has, and the more connections you can make to how it feels, how it tastes, the size of it, what it looks like, the stronger of a, you know of reinforcement it is in your brain. And so that is one location. So just like you, you pick next one up is like you know by your garage door or either the, the front door. Next one is for, you know inside the house in your kitchen or whatever comes next. And so you pick like you know these ten different locations. You place one object down at each location, and sure enough, like I can go back days later and tell you exactly where the pickled garlic was. Right. And anyone, oh, I mean, I shouldn't say anyone, but almost anyone can do this. And what I used to do, I was lazy. I didn't want to use. So if, if you use the same location over and over and over and over again, I found at least that there was a fair amount of interference mm -hmm. and I would get confused because I right. recall something that I already put in a specific place. So what I would do if I was sitting 
in uh, you know the equivalent of like a bar on Princeton campus, hanging out with somebody, and they're like, "Oh, you do some. I heard you do some weird memory shit. Like, hey, like, you know, dance for me, monkey." And I'd be like, "Okay," <laughs> and and so I would actually look around the room that I was sitting in, and I would place wherever within the direction I happened to be facing, and I would place the images. Uh, around the room. And what was so wild about that is that it was so unique, a signature, it was so unique, a frame that I could see the person two, three days later. And I'd be like, Hey, do you still have that five in your wallet? I'd be like, you want the serial code backwards? And they'd be like, what? And people can get to that level of proficiency within a week or two of practice. It's it's not complicated. Yeah, so anyway, this is a great book. I'm enjoying it so far. If you're looking to uh, improve your memory, um, you know, there's a bunch of little tricks that they're starting to uh, unveil about halfway through the book. It's been a fun read, and it's also on Audible, too. That's I've how heard, I got yeah, it. I've heard great things about it. Uh, there's another book, for those of you who want uh, a compliment that I found extremely helpful, uh, and I believe the author, I, I haven't seen the book in probably 20 years, but I think it's Higby is the last name, H-I-G-B-E-E, Your Memory and How to Improve It. Barely uh, sure I'm getting that right, or partially right. Cool. And that is, a, that out as well. that is a, a tremendous resource. Uh, there, Because in my, I'd say, sophomore year, all of the recreational reading I did was related to mnemonic devices and studying this type of, some people would call it artificial enhancement of memory. That's so funny. I, we didn't even know this when I sat down. Like I, you didn't even know I was going to bring this book up. No, I, I had no idea. I had no idea. I mean, there's another one, there's another book that's just a description of a, a basically a super mind called mind of a mnemonist, like mnemonic M N E M A blah, blah, blah. Nemanist, you can figure it out. Mind of a Nemanist by uh, A.J. Luria and talks about synesthesia and all this kind of crazy, crazy stuff. Just Rain Man-like. That's awesome. Abilities and beyond, which is, uh, I thought was very inspiring, but it also highlighted that when you have those types of gifts, it's often a very mixed bag. Yeah. You have a lot of issues. Actually, they bring that up a lot in this book. They, they walk through a couple profiles of individuals that have had more or less perfect memories and the it's very daunting not to be able to forget certain things. It actually has really bad... Like, you want to be able to forget certain things. Like, we're built to forget certain things. Yeah. And it shows the consequences there, and they're not pretty. No, they're not, which is why when I look at technology and living in Silicon Valley as I do, and the perspective of memory enhancement yeah, uh, using technological means, and I think that there's a lot of promise in developing... Uh, some of these technologies, which are well in development at this point. I mean, well in development. I mean, these these are this is not science about fiction. The low voltage. No, I'm not talking stuff? about the. I'm not talking about TDCS, which would be the transcranial direct current stimulation. Sounds right. that right. Uh, no, I've experimented with that. I'm How do you? I have. Gosh, we could just keep going on. We could just get keep to the going. Q&A. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll, we'll do Q&A. And if you guys want to talk more about cognitive enhancement and memory, we can certainly do that. We should but do there, There's a great... Actually, that. I have another recommendation for people, uh, which is, have you guys seen Black Mirror? No. Oh, my God. You I haven't seen Black, Black Mirror? Oh. Wait, I did see Black... You mean the, the little miniseries? The miniseries that's yeah. like the Twilight Zone based on technology? Eh. Oh, the first one was just kind of like the first one. Look, the first one is creepy and gross, creepy and gross, but, but 
there are I really enjoyed it. There's some very good episodes. The one would, where the, like the the I, I watched the one where the president's like no that daughter the, gets kidnapped or whatever. Uh, or yeah, that's the first. I think that's the first. Yeah, one. I think that's the first. One. Uh, it's a mind trip. But there's one episode about a f- not too distant future where you can replay memories that are con- because your reality, your waking reality, is being recorded through your eye. And you can replay them or project them for people, rewind, search for certain things. I don't think that we're that far away. That's crazy. Uh, but it, it definitely highlights some of the risks involved I mean, that, that could be amazing, but it also could be really horrible. I think it could be both. Will be both. Uh, all right. Q&A. Q&A. Let's um, do it. You want, you want to take a stab first? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start first. This is kind of fun. I get to interview you on your podcast. <laughs> I guess the random shows are a shared show, but, but this is more or less your channel. So here we go. <laughs> Um, what is one illegal substance <laughs> that you've tried that has changed you for the better? Ah, uh, Ooh, got Tim Tim on this one. Yeah. Okay. Psilocybin. Psilocybin. Yeah. Let's, let's, That's your number one. That would be, I would say the, uh, that was the, I had a number of very transformative and formative experiences with psilocybin uh, that were, I think, the tipping point for certain decisions and reprogramming. What did it do for you? What, what's the thing that we, I mean, clearly, as mentioned just a few minutes ago with the research that you want to do, something happened. Something happened and that it changed you. Yeah. What was, what, what was the change that happened there? The change, uh, I've, I've, I would say I've always been a worrier. I've always had a fair degree of anxiety, which is not uncommon among A-type personalities. And I heard... This is me to the T. Well, I I heard at one point, and I want to know the attribution on this, so somebody please let us know. Just hit us up on on the Twitters. At T. Ferris, at Kevin Rose. Rose. Let us know. But this expression that I heard, which rang so true to me, was uh, anxiety is being trapped in the future and depression is being trapped in the past. So if you're a planner, if you're a control freak, what are you doing? You're constantly planning. What if this? What if that? Contingency A, contingency B. Makes you a fucking stress case. Dude, that's me. Yeah. So, and it manifests in different ways, right? Some people get angry. Some people start losing their temper. Other people develop physical symptoms. Uh, Some type of, uh, whether it's um, any GI discomfort, acid reflux, whatever it might be, right? Acid reflux. I've had it all. Yeah. So, so what, what my experience was is that at sufficient dose, and this is something you really need to do with proper supervision. And I'm not just saying that as ass covering uh, sort of liability lip service. There are many cases of people using psychedelics in the wrong circumstances and dying. You can make very bad decisions, step out in front of traffic, you can jump out of a window. Like there are many different ways that you can horribly injure or kill yourself if this is not used in a responsible way. It's not from like overdosing from the psilocybin, right? No, it's from making very poor decisions because you think you can fly or something like that. Or drive your car or something stupid. Right, all terrible ideas. So you need proper supervision. But with all those caveats... uh, Let's use a comparison. I think we've all had the experience of opening up a computer. Let's say you're using Chrome. doesn't really matter. You have 30 30 tabs open. And you're running out of storage. Yeah, okay. I'm looking at Kevin's computer right now. It looks just like mine. So you have like 30 tabs open. That's at least 30. You have 30 tabs open. 
Uh, warning, startup disk almost full. Oh, shit. What do I do? And then Dropbox is syncing. Why is my computer running so slow? Oh, Slack's all, also on. And not necessarily the Mac, but with something else. It's like, why is my system so goddamn slow? Oh, the antivirus is on. At you some, have the antivirus on a Mac? I don't. I said on a non-Mac. Okay. Um, for me, what a high-dose uh, or moderate, moderate to high-dose psilocybin uh, experience does is it serves as a hard reboot. It basically just so, cleans that entire system, flushes the cache, and allows me to regain a sort of 30,000-foot view sanity in view of larger pictures and my most important priorities and remove all of that noise. And the, the anxiolytics, so the, ang, the anxiety decreasing and sort of de- depression, which I've also battled with, suppressing effect, for me, the first time I used it last, lasted, I want to say, three to six months. It wow. was unbelievable. It was just unbelievable how persistent it was. And uh, so I would say uh, that is my answer. Hmm. That's fascinating. That's awesome. Good answer. Thanks. So I'm going to ask a few questions that I don't think I got around to asking the first time. All right. Uh, when you hear the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind and why? Oh, you know, I would probably say Philip Rosedale. Okay. And who's Philip and why? So he created um, Second Life way back in the day, the, the virtual world Second Life. And I have interviewed him um, on my show Foundation back in the day. Um, I had a podcast called Foundation. You can still find it. It's, I think it's foundation.bz um, where I interviewed a bunch of entrepreneurs several years ago. And the reason that I like him is, is a, on a couple fronts. One, I feel that he is a very creative person that doesn't um, it fully accepts risk and just goes in head first and is willing to try really wild and crazy ideas and really doesn't care if they fail and always has um, done that throughout his entire career and been very successful at it. And he continues to do that today. And I just, you know, I really admire people that um, aren't afraid of failure and willing to try big, bold things. You know, I think like Elon Musk would be an easy answer on this front because he's trying so many really cool, big, bold ideas. Um, but founders of Google, another, or, uh, I mean, the another example. Yeah, the founders of Google. But I, I, Larry Page has said, you know, the the one of the things that people miss is that if you're, and I'm paraphrasing here, but if you aim big enough, it's very hard to fail completely. Like that, you take something from it, or you learn lessons right. that then you can parlay into the next thing that is successful. I think that the the problem I have with the founders of Google and I've had the pleasure of meeting these guys and I think they're, I'm not knocking them at all. They're really brilliant guys. Like clearly have created an amazing organization that continues to do great work. The issue I have is that, and the reason I like Philip and I picked him over like the founders of Google. You're at, you're mad about your AdSense account. I'm, they banned my AdSense account. <laughs> no, 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 seriously. It's because that Philip has these ideas that are just, so crazy. Like you'll have to go back and listen to my other podcasts about like how to manage people and how to manage projects and how to get 
group think to come together and create beautiful things. And it's just, they're, they're kind of out of this world ideas. And I, I'm attracted to that for some reason. I like the really crazy thinkers. Like I just had um, Jason Fried on my podcast um, that I do for the journal podcast that I do. And he has created an amazing startup, but he, he was like, we were talking about the culture that he creates at his company. One of the things that he said is that I want to pay people for getting eight hours of sleep. Like, and he wants to track that. Like you come in with your Fitbit, you auth in your account and it shows that you slept a full eight hours and you get paid a bonus. Like, that's amazing. Like he really cares about how can I take care of the entire life cycle of an individual in ways that I've never heard about before. So those are the types of ideas that aren't just, you know, how can we create a a better browser? How can we create a self-driving car? They're just really... I don't know. I'm I was not just I'm smiling because I was thinking with a Fitbit, you could you could try to pay people for having like an hour of sex a day. That that you can, <laughs> as, well. as an accelerometer, you That's should be able right. to figure it out. But it's it's just, <laughs> That's true. You'd have to wear a belt while you were boning, I guess. There's there's um. <laughs> Sorry, this question was where would you attach it? <laughs> <laughs> No, there that's could be true, a, yeah. like a Fitbit cock ring or something. I guess you could do. <laughs> so, so no, no, seriously. Let me let me say one last thing on this topic, and then we can move on. But the, the butterfly. Yeah, <laughs> my head all messed up now. The la- the last thing though is that um, I think that in in being a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley for so many years, like we see the same pitches over and over. And you see modifications of, hey, I'm the Uber for this. Hey, I'm the Twitter for that. It's just the hey, incremental I'm the MySpace for this. Like, me too, also ran it, stuff. It, it's the, it's the um, Peter Thiel, like true zero to one jump. Like those big ideas that are new and beautiful and ugly and scary and all those things that you find them so rarely in founders. And I, I like those types of founders. And so that's, that's why he came to mind. Yeah, and uh, Philip also has a tremendous amount of stamina. I mean, he's been in the game for a long, a long time. time. Yeah. He, he knows how to kind of modulate, and uh, I'm not going to say, I don't think pacing is the right word, but he's been very consistent. Big-time meditator, too. Yeah. Invent, invented his own form of meditation. I'm not joking. What what characterizes it? What, <laughs> he, what? he counts to, like, what was it? It's more than 3,000. It gets to like 10,000 a day. So he does mantra based, but based on counting. And he just single, like, single digits, we one, were, two, yeah, three. Yeah, we were sitting there and he's like, yeah, I'm at 587 right now. And he's wait, like, he does it as, every day. No, no, wait, but as he's doing other activities? Oh my think God, he, that sounds between, difficult. Yeah, he doesn't stop down to like do it. He'll like have like So he'll be on like minutes. a conference call and he's at like 6,737. Right. And then he stops and then he goes, does it, if he has a minute, he does an extra oh, hundred. Oh, I see. He picks up. Yeah, picks up. <laughs> that sounds so stressful. It, it totally does to me, but it works for him. Yeah. Hey, whatever works. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> Uh, All right, next question. Let's bang through these. We got to. It's after midnight now. All right. All right. um, If you could, uh, that one I kind of already asked. Well, let me ask it again. If you could change any law, what would it be? And you can't say drugs. If I could change any law, what would it be? And I can't talk about mind-altering substances. Uh, You asked me what my favorite breakfast cereal was on podcast one. So this is. That's true. No, I asked you even an even worse question. I asked you if you could be a breakfast cereal. What would you be? <laughs> what a fucking terrible question. God, you know what? You were just getting started. You know, we all we all we all start off a little wobbly. Oh Lord, uh, changing law. Let me think about this for a sec. Is there anything that just drives you nuts? Where you're just like, why is that a law? 
You gotta have some political. Somewhere. I do, I do. I mean, and I, I, well, I just because I've gone through this recently, uh, I guess I've been told that I am a libertarian. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that let me give kind of a, a larger picture answer to that. I think that there are laws, and perhaps all laws should be revisited and reassessed on occasion because there are certain laws that are put in place to in the best cases, uh, create the greatest good for the greatest number of people in circumstances that then change. So for instance, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, building a barrel sauna and it's, it's relatively small. It looks like a gigantic wine barrel effectively, mm-hmm. uh, based on plans that were given to me by Rick Rubin, who got them from Laird Hamilton. It's an incredible setup, uh, surprisingly inexpensive. And to put that on my own property out of view of any neighbors was just like trying to broker a fucking peace treaty between like North and Why South Korea. Why did you tell your neighbors? What's that? Why did you tell your neighbors? No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with my neighbors. It has everything to do with just getting city and town permits and all oh, that kind of stuff. just don't do that. Just do it yourself. Just don't do it? No, no, no. You have to do that. It's, uh, there are, in any case, this, this, is, uh, this is just one example, but I really, I'm generally a small government guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really feel like if you look at, for instance, um, crises uh, or natural disasters, and this is a conversation I had with Sebastian Younger not too long ago, who wrote a great book called Tribe that talks about this, in earthquakes, in the, the Blitz, when London was being bombed during World War II. People develop social structures and rules that, uh, that keep the peace and assign roles to different types of people and, and create order amongst themselves. Now I'm not an anarchist. I'm not saying the government shouldn't exist, but I do think that we've edged too far into a nanny state type of dependency, which is, it's, it's not a healthy dependency whatsoever. I think that it's, uh, it's created a stifling environment for certain things, whether it is this barrel sauna or hiring really good, non-U.S. citizens to work at your startup. Right. Uh, and uh, I know a lot of That's icons issue. in Silicon Valley have been times. working on it, but it's just like, why is this so hard? It's ludicrous. It yeah. is completely ludicrous. Uh, so those are, uh, you know, especially based in a country where the blend of cultures and innovation that we have is directly a consequence of massive immigration. Right. <laughs> it's just outrageous. So, uh, in any case, that's, that's my rant. But, um, if I could change any law, yeah, n- n- nothing super specific. The sauna laws. The sauna laws. <laughs> I really fair. need to, I need to provide more money to the sauna <laughs> lobby, I think is what this comes down to. Just do a fundraiser for the sauna. Get <laughs> yeah, sauna I'm sure t-shirt. I could come up with a better answer if I thought more about it. That's yeah. great. Cool. Oh, here's one. I think that uh, it should be easier to uh, for people to, and this is, I'm sure, state by state and not just federal. Uh, I think it should be easier for uh, a loved one to take their loved one off of life support or provide ethical euthanasia in cases where that has been sort of prearranged. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that the state should have a say in that. 
I think that if, if, if that is something that has been documented and agreed upon beforehand, uh, I think that that should be an option in more circumstances. Yeah. Sucks to see people suffer. Yeah. All right. What's my question? Uh, your question. These are, these are pretty, pretty short ones. Uh, what is, what is the book or books that you've gifted most to other people? Uh, number one would be miracle for uh, miracle of mindfulness. Have you, uh, that's uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. That's right. Yep. That's Have you ever read that book? Great book. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it was, it was the one that really got me into mindfulness and, um, really applying it to kind of everyday life. There's a story, um, in there where he talks about washing the dishes, uh, to wash the dishes. Yeah. Instead of thinking about, it, I think it's the, the, the plum that you're going to eat after the dishes. Right. Exactly. It's such a good anecdote though, because I know. It, and, and the point being like, if you're thinking about the plum, when you're washing the dishes, when you're eating the plum, you're going to be thinking about your exactly. fucking email or whatever right. it is. Right. So yeah. his whole thing is, I mean, we should be in the moment and focusing on the task at hand, putting our full attention on that and really living that moment. And this is just a great, really short read. You can pick it up on Amazon for like 12 bucks. It's not an expensive book. And it's, it's one of my favorite when it comes to mindfulness. Uh, what's second place? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, just because of, of doing the whole social internet thing in the early days, um, I would say that uh, Wisdom of Crowds was a big one for me. Mm. That, that meant a lot to me. And there's still some, some uh, great little tidbits in there. Um, gosh. I'd have to think outside of that. Um, green eggs and ham. Green eggs and ham. Uh, I think those are my probably my top two. Fantastic. Uh, since uh, I gave a long-winded answer, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you some airtime. I'll ask another question. Uh, recent purchase doesn't have to be recent of a hundred dollars or less that has positively impacted your life. Mm. Or any purchase of a hundred dollars or less that had a significant positive effect on your life. You know, I, I hate to plug my, my other podcast, but, um, on episode number two, um, I went out and, uh, of the journal, I went out and interviewed this guy that is a master of pens. Like he just knows more about pens than we do about anything else on earth. Mm -hmm. And he recommended like three pens that are, have the absolute best rollerball pen, the best fountain pen. And these are all like $4 pens. Okay. Some of them are really hard to find. Some of them like you can only find in Japan. And, uh, <laughs> that's convenient. <laughs> it, no, but like you can find them online, but they're just harder to find. And I swapped out my entire stock of pens at the office at my desk with these cheap little three or four dollar pens, and they're amazing. So, Do you recall the names of it? Yes, I can put them in your show notes. I will okay. get his top three, and they'll they'll be there in the show notes. All right, we'll put these in the show notes, guys. Fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, and you can find show notes for this and all the other episodes. But but that's just like I, I think that for me represents kind of who I am as a person in that. I like to, and you know this about me, I like to geek out on something and go really, really, really deep. Yep. And you think you're like this too. I'm definitely. like this too, definitely. Like you find something that you're into and I'm like, really, there's a better pen? Tell me more, you know? And he's like, end up having a 30 or 40 minute podcast about notebooks and pens. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that was super geeky. And I don't know if anyone will like it, but I have some awesome notebooks now, <laughs> you know? So that's, uh, that's kind of what I like to do. I like right. I, I dig pens. I have a bit of a pen fetish myself, so this is uh, this is right up my alley. Uh, the next question for you. All right, what is one body experiment you wish you didn't do? 
<laughs> uh, one physical experiment that I wish I didn't, that I uh, did not, not partake that you in. can't mention the double circumcision. I can't mention the double circumcision. I'm sorry I did that to Toaster. I, uh, <laughs> I do Maybe regret that. Sorry, Toasty. Excuse me. He's sleeping. Neg- yeah, all right. He's, He's still in pain. Good, good boy. <laughs> uh, the one that comes to mind is... Uh, <laughs> all right. So I was in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, doing research related to a number of chapters in the four-hour body. I was getting uh, muscle biopsies, which involves having something the size of a large pen stabbed into the side of your leg to cut muscle tissue out. Not super comfy. That one I don't regret. That got me a lot of really interesting enzymatic information uh, related to endurance and so on. And also muscle fiber analysis, which was really fascinating. I was at the Sports Science Institute of South Africa, and uh, Dr. Timothy Noakes is there. Brilliant guy. Uh, incredibly well versed in the in the worlds of ultra endurance and hydration, uh, or lack thereof, and how the body responds to different states of hydration and uh, performance implications. I wanted to do a very, uh, I should say, well known, well established running test. It's going to be an endurance test, which I'm not known for to start with. And I decided that I could use every advantage possible. And I had read uh, in a number of places that resveratrol, which most people associate with longevity, which is the, the excuse wine the excuse they use to drink red wine, whereas in reality, you'd have to have like 72 cases a day right, to get is. sort of the therapeutic uh, dose used in clinical, something absurd like that. Resveratrol also has apparently some incredible implications for endurance. And I remember seeing this video. I, I believe it was super rat. So there was like normal rat <laughs> and then super rat running on a treadmill. I, I want to say this is David, David Sinclair, perhaps who did. And, and they gave super rat resveratrol. And it just, it, it, it's, it's endurance like doubled. It was just, it's runtime to exhaustion doubled or something just obscene like that. And I said, okay, well, let me look at the research, figure out the dosing they used on the rats, oh my God. the milligrams per kilogram. And then I... Oh, my God, I, you ratted yourself. And then I ordered like I ordered like five months worth of resveratrol, like oh multiple no. bottles, and uh, consumed... Don't do this at home, kids. Consumed all of the bottles because I had to consume something like 120 capsules to get the proper milligrams per kilogram. Now, why would you do this? Well, there are there are a couple of issues here, folks. For those of you who haven't realized this is dumb yet, Um, I couldn't I couldn't figure out a way to expediently, if that's the right word, expeditiously, perhaps uh, have this administered uh, through injection, which is almost certainly how it was given to these rats because they didn't feed the rats like resveratrol chow. I'm pretty sure. So they most likely injected it intramuscularly or intravenously. I didn't have that as an option, so I did it orally. Well, there are a bunch of issues that come up here. Um, Now, I'll just flash forward and give you guys a snapshot, then I'll explain what happened. So I'm sitting there in this meeting, and I wish I could remember this guy's name. He was such a serious, brilliant, hilarious guy. I want to say it was Tertius. Just a fantastic name. And he's sitting there, and he's like, I'm not going to try to do a South African accent. I wish I could. But he's like, what do you have to understand here? You know, and he's like explaining this very, very seriously to me. And it's like a 
10 minute kind of intro to what I'm about to do. And out of nowhere, I just start sweating fucking bullets, like cold sweat. How many pills did you take at this point? Oh, I had all of them, like a half hour beforehand. Yeah, I had like 90 or 120 capsules. you drinking like 10 at a time, like just kind of gulping them Uh, down? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really good at swallowing pills. So I just start, I get this profuse cold sweat, like out of nowhere, click. It's just like pouring down my face. And he's giving me this very serious speech, and I'm trying to pay attention. I'm like blinking because the sweat's coming into my eyes, and he's like, are you okay? (laughs) I need a hamster wheel stat. And I was like, uh, do you have a bathroom nearby? And he's like, uh, sure. And he points me down the hallway and I kind of do like the butt squeeze waddle down the hallway and do like a reverse broad jump through the stall and just stay there for the next 45 minutes. So what I didn't realize, what was not listed in the ingredient list on these pills is, and uh, I'm pretty sure I'm getting this right. There's something called, there was something used as a filler called emodin, and emodin acts as a laxative. Yeah, no, it was, I think it was emodin, and I was just a disaster. So, needless to say, completely killed my endurance. I did the running test. It was ten times worse than it would have been if I had not swallowed 120 pills. You probably like lost a ton of water. Oh, and... it was a complete disaster. So that was that You're was. Lucky you didn't like have some crazy horrible side effect, like you know. I yeah, I mean, look, I don't recommend. Uh, mimicking that behavior, but to the extent possible, I did do my homework. I read a lot on PubMed. Uh, I knew that there was a risk that I would have GI distress. I just didn't know that it would be like that severe. <laughs> yeah, exorcists like style, but out <laughs> yeah. the other end type of issue. So live and learn. I saw I saw a T-shirt. I was walking around here. We're in New York City right now. And uh, there's a saw this shirt that said, bad decisions make good stories. So I guess this is one of those examples. There you go. Uh, what advice would you give to your 20 or 25-year-old self? You can choose which and place us like where you are and what you're doing. I don't know whether I should go 20 or 25. I, okay, let's go 25. All right. So right around that time... Um, was uh, let's just place it right around when I was creating Dig for the first time and, and created that site. And that kind of exploded and got a bunch of users and we grew that company to a, a pretty decent size. Um, the issue, though, was at that age, I had just really... Uh, I was still really immature. I just... Um, and my biggest issue and what I would sit down with I, my younger self, I would say to that person would be to seek out mentors and to stop acting like you know it all. Mm-hmm. In that um, when I didn't know something, I refused to learn it because I wanted to focus on what I already knew I was good at. And so... I was really good at um, the kind of creative side and coming up with like new feature ideas and product ideas and things like that. But when it come when it came down to um, hiring a staff or interviewing folks or um, you know just all the other pieces of a business that you have to learn in order to succeed, um, I just didn't have any of that. And rather than admit that I didn't know it. I kind of just turned a blind eye to it and that caused a lot of problems later. For me, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to focus on this small little domain and 
hire other people to take over my kind of weak spots. And I just, first of all, didn't even know how to hire the right folks. And um, we hired some great people, don't get me wrong, but it, I kind of gave the keys to the castle to folks rather than taking on the hard work, which was was admitting that I didn't know these things and and putting in the time and effort to to become proficient in them. So that was uh, that's probably what I'd go back to that 25 year old self is say, you know, it's a lot of the stuff that I'm, I'm still learning today. It's like now as like, you know, probably a fourth time, fourth or fifth time entrepreneur having a startup. It's like, I'm putting a lot of time and effort. I feel like I'm mature enough now. And then granted I'm almost 40, but you know, it's, it's finally, it's, um, you know, if I don't know something, I immediately go and say, okay, who's the smartest person in the room or who can point me in the right direction so that I can go and get schooled up on this. Um, because it's important. You can't just, you know, uh, shuffle that stuff to the side and, and kind of let, let an ego get in the way when it, it shouldn't be. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, the sort of short term ego pain prevents the long term sort of catastrophic pain. Right. Uh, exactly. And it only happens once, right? You have that s- a small little bashed your ego for 10 minutes but you get introduced to the right folks and you, you know, you admit that you don't know something and then guess what? That, that never comes up again because you can go and get schooled up on that. And so that's good advice. What is the, what is the worst advice that you hear being thrown around for startup founders or two startup founders? What is, what is some bad advice that's given frequently? Do you think? Hmm. Some bad advice that is given frequently to startup founders. Um, or just bad advice in general. Something that you think is bad advice that you hear a lot. Well, certainly I know that I've seen many of startups that they believe that when they have a little bit of traction, now is the time to go raise a bunch of capital and just spend into that and hope for the best. And oftentimes you see a lot of bloat created and a lot of extra pressure to hit certain milestones that um, don't make sense and then cause you to make kind of really bad short-term decisions for the business to bring in revenue when it's really not going to help you out in the long term. So, you know, I think there's a bunch of examples I could give here and I don't want to pick on any one individual company um, but that, that said, let me pick up one company. <laughs> no, but, that's uh, like when people are like, I don't want to be an asshole, but that usually means they're immediately going to be an asshole. Yeah, I know. There's that great onion article that says, uh, devil's advocate turns out to be just big asshole. Like, <laughs> I love that article. It's so true. Um, I heard this, sorry, side note, I heard this comedian say, when someone says I'm a taxpayer, it means they're about to be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, um, you know, I, I think, uh, a great example of this is like, you know, a company like, and I've seen this happen to a dozen different companies, but a company like fab.com, I was an angel investor there, brilliant, great founder, great seed of an idea, actually a great pivot from the site they were before into kind of very design oriented e-commerce play. Um, had a great following was, was doing, um, uh, you know, their, their conversions on these little flash sales that we're doing were working quite well. Um, went out, raised several monster rounds, hired up a bunch of employees and just like really spent into this business and blew through a bunch of capital and then 
when that novelty kind of wore off, um, the business went away. That said, you know, there's, I think that growing thoughtfully and in line and in, in track and in parallel with your revenue and being a little bit more responsible around that, um, and not going crazy on the kind of over raising capital and, and, uh, you know, spending too much cash up front is makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that we're getting better at that as an industry. I think there's been enough fires now that people can see that's not the wisest uh, way to go. That said, we still see things like Uber and others that are just raising monster amounts of cash. But the good news is that they have real revenue to back it up. Yep. Um, I think this was, this was very much uh, a thing when you don't have the revenue and you're going and doing this, it's a, it's a bad Bad decision. Yeah, there's also, I mean, if we're looking at, say, Fab versus Uber, right? The Fab example is very different in the respect also that it's not necessarily a winner-take-all market where they have to dominate, say, a city or a country or a continent to become the de facto choice for, say, ride-sharing, where there are certain network effects or marketplace dynamics, at least, where if they have the most drivers then they'll have the most riders because the riders want to have the fastest pickup time. If, sure. they, if they have the most riders, then they will be able to recruit the most drivers, et cetera. So that it's a virtuous cycle for the the person who owns the most market share on both sides of that, uh, that equation. Yeah, I but think- in a fab case or many cases like it, people just want to. And I think, I mean, I don't want to take us necessarily down this rabbit hole, but there are a lot of perverse incentives at play and there are always perverse incentives, but particularly perverse incentives at play in an environment like we are either just coming out of or still in, uh, wherein, uh, and there are many people who disagree with this, and I don't have issues with smaller examples, but there are startups that are on their way to failure. The founders know, and they take a ton of money off the table. The employees see nothing, and then it just craters. Right. And that uh, that is a byproduct of being able to raise these monster rounds in right. part, riding momentum of eyeballs and so on, as opposed to revenue. Right. Um, and um, well, I think that's yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that I just kind of got dismayed and disillusioned with a lot of the uh, exchanges—I wouldn't even call them because certainly not long-term relationship building—but a lot of these sort of transactional exchanges that happen in that startup ecosystem. Yeah. There's a lot of positives to taking venture capital. One of the negatives is that the founders are pushed to build a bigger and bigger business. And so, you know, I think that if you go out and you, so for example, when I first launched dig, I launched it as a, just a tech only news site and it quickly became the largest tech news site in the world. Like there was no doubt we had more traffic than every, at the time it was like, uh, CNET site, like CNET was big and a, and a couple of their blogs. Um, but when a certain amount of dollars came to the table, it was like, Hey, we love what you're doing with, with dig as a tech site. Why don't you go into world news and politics and, you know, science and all these other categories. And so we did that. And then it was like, well, you know what? That's great. And you're, you have 38 million people a month coming to your site. But wouldn't it be great if you could get to 50 or 100 million people coming to your site per month? So why don't you expand into something that, you know, my mom would like to use and embrace some of the uh, traditional news sites and help them promote their content and things that just weren't naturally organic in our DNA. And I think that 
that is the danger there. And that's where if a fab had stayed small, if a dig had stayed small, if some of these other sites had just really focused on their core and stayed true to their DNA, they wouldn't be forced to make these unnatural decisions that eventually lead to them being not really servicing the right, their, their audience, their core audience. Now, in fairness, though, I'll play devil's advocate slash asshole here, which is if you sign up for taking venture capital, sure, I, you have to understand the, that's, that's the, the you have to understand the economics the of venture capital, which mean they, they need you to grow, right? Because they, in turn, have their bosses, who are the LPs, and they have a fiduciary responsibility to try to generate whatever it is, a 10x, 100x return for a few startups because the rest are going to be dogs or dead or zombies, right? And I think that's where, as a founder, as Kevin, the 25-year-old founder versus where I am today, the difference is that um, the 25-year-old Kevin would have taken that as gospel in that they're like, hey, you should go do X, Y, and Z. Okay, I'm going to go do that. It sounds great. You, could, you guys have been down this road before. The Kevin today would say... Thank you very much, trusted advisor, as you are as like if they have a seat at the board or something like that. And take that into consideration because oftentimes it is great advice. And, you know, eight times out of 10, you're going to agree with them. But there's that couple times there where you're going to say, that doesn't make sense for my business and say, you know, I respect you and your idea, but th- we're not going to do that. That's just not... You know, and they can't force your hand at that unless they have control of the board, in which case you whole, get yourself in a really whole, whole separate conversation. Whole separate conversation there. <laughs> uh, All right, I have two more questions for you. Let's do it. Uh, first one, rapid two rapid fires. Biggest misconception people have about you? That I have an issue with hard work. I don't have an issue with hard work. I have an issue with hard work applied to stupid things. <laughs> So you should focus on being effective, picking the right things to do before you focus on being efficient, which is doing things well. Because do you really only work four hours a week? Oh, God. The, here's the reality. You I didn't know that this. You're just I... like, I know you're like verbally just fucking tickling my balls to make me uncomfortable. <laughs> the, the, uh, the fact of the matter is, and you know this, I don't have to work at all if I don't want to work. Right? It's like it, the... That is not the driver for me at this point in my life. The I was just joking. You don't have to answer this question. I know oh, you, God like, damn it. Like, I'm not allowed to have booze right now. I could use some booze, but I'm not going to do it for reasons I can't discuss. Top secret. Continue. Okay, next question. Um, this is a very serious question, and I don't know <laughs> if you'll like this question, actually. This is very serious, and I dislike it. My favorite type of question already. But I, I, <laughs> I think that... I think that other people out there, if I didn't know you as well as I know you, I'd be curious about this, okay? The rumors about my 21-inch cock are all true. There you go. Um, <laughs> I, I can't even blame so it on the booze. You, I haven't you, had you're, any. You're I guess thir- I'm just... You're 39. 39. Dirty old man. 39, is that right? No, I'm 38. 38, sorry. Jesus. That's right. You're one year behind early, me. Early onset Alzheimer's to my own okay. age, too. So you're not married yet. I'm not. You, I've known you for quite a while now and I've seen you through a handful of relationships, but for those that don't know you, what do you look for in a, a a woman and what's like your take on, on dating? I'm curious, like who dates Tim Ferriss? Like, what do you, what do you look for? (laughs) Masochistic, uh, advised women. I know that's not true. I'm joking. What do I look for? Well, I'll I'll tell you what I'm looking for is a half Japanese, half Italian, (laughs) bisexual architect, super athlete. (laughs) Part-time swimsuit model? You're not joking either. That's the funny part. <laughs> I know you well enough to know that like you're joking for the podcast, but you're really not joking. Who does who does who who knows how to squat with at least body weight? 
he's, this is well, actually what you're looking for. I, <laughs> I, well, I'll put it this way. I wouldn't mind that. That sounds, that sounds like very enjoyable conversation. Uh, I, uh, what do I look for in a woman? I look for, uh, I think, I think it's what, I, for, it's generally what I look for in a human being. Right? Do you want someone that can kick your ass though? Like, do you have to meet someone like you're a hardcore person? Yeah. I would say of all my friends, like you are like, even though you can relax and you meditate and all that stuff, but you're like, you're very into shit and take stuff very seriously. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hardcore about a lot of things and I can be hard around the edges. So, uh, these are characteristics that I, I don't know if I could fix and I'm not sure I want to fix them because I've seen so many benefits from them. I mean, they've been useful tools. Uh, so I will tell you, I've, I've dated women who are very, very feminine and yin. I mean, very kind of swirling in emotional range and uh, very nurturing. Uh, and I've also dated women who are extremely tough and make me want to be more resilient, less reactive, hyper-driven. And both of those can work for me. Uh, I think what is important is that you can have someone who is driven and tough like that, who doesn't feel the need to, to constantly butt heads to assert being an alpha. That is something I, I can't have in a relationship because I'm already that way. You can't have two of those in one right. room. It's like, what are they called? They're like Chinese fighting fish. You put them in a bowl and they just fucking kill each other. Like yeah. you can't, that, that, that in a dynamic doesn't work, right? Whether it's a, you know, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever sexual relationship, there, there has to be a complement of personality traits and strengths and weaknesses. Uh, I mean, I could go down a long list, uh, what do you want me to focus on? I can, I'm just curious, like what it is that you're looking for now. And like, like you, you know, we don't have to go. What's that? Yeah. I think that was a good answer. Yeah. I mean, and and I'll be honest, there's a big part of me. Uh, I not too, too long ago, got out of a very long, very serious, fantastic relationship, uh, that I reflect on a lot, but Ultimately, I wasn't sure what I was looking for in my life as it relates to family and, and or marriage, and that led to an indecision that was unfair, a uh, level of indecision that was unfair to my partner at the time. Mm-hmm. And so when you ask me, what are you looking for? Part of me wants to say, I don't know. Like, I know what I can't stand. I can tell you that. But... What I what I might look for in person that I'm envisioning as the mother of several kids of mine is very different from what I envision. Say if I if I'm considering that my life might be a combination of different women, or oh, shit. a lack of marriage entirely, but having say maybe I have a wife and then a mistress. Maybe I have who's like they, and they both know each other. Maybe I have two wives. Maybe I have a raise the red lantern situation with like six wives. Sounds like a huge headache on a lot of levels to me personally, but, uh, or maybe it's a, a, a series of very intimate lovers that I stay in touch with. I don't know. 
Honestly, I just, it's a big question mark to me. And, uh, for the time being, I'm, I'm spending time, uh, with people and this includes women that, and I think these are very important who I respect a lot. So whether they are super hardcore and driven or just very good at what they do, but extremely soft and able to counterbalance some of my like hard edged steely attributes, which can be really damaging in excess. Like I need someone to help temper that. Uh, I respect them because they're good at what they do. I enjoy spending time with them because I learn from them. They don't take themselves too seriously so they can laugh at themselves. They take care of themselves physically I mean, for most of my friends, that's, that's a criteria that that's one of the criteria as well. Like I, I, I want to be averaged up in all ways possible by the people I surround myself with. So even if I have friends, some friends who might not take care of themselves physically, I need at least a few close friends who do, because if I'm the average of the five people I associate with most, well, shit, I need to be very careful about how I kind of allocate those interactions. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, what else? I like really nice hamstrings. I like uh, big brown eyes, little brown ankles, as one friend would put it. Little brown ankles. <laughs> big brown eyes, little brown ankles. That's how he describes the type of woman he likes. Uh, I like generally long hair, but I can think of an exception to all these things. That's that's the thing. People are like, oh, what's your type? And I'm like, I don't like super hot and smart and funny. I don't know. Like, like color doesn't matter to me. Um, but I, in terms of like short hair, long hair, eh, I don't like tattoos, no tattoos, piercing, no piercings. Like I've dated every possible permutation of those. So I don't know what to tell you. I just, I love women, period. <laughs> I'm, not sure what, I'm not sure what to do about that. That's, I think that's part of the challenge that I'm having. Yeah, but I, I that, that was a great answer. I think that's all we got. I think that's all we got. Uh, well, how should we close out? Do you have any, any parting thoughts, recommendations, reflections? Uh, yes, I do. In fact, um, sign up for my newsletter, thejournal.email on the internet. And uh, I send out once a month newsletter of all my kind of crazy chaotic stuff and gear and tech stuff that I'm checking out. Um, that also has a podcast on iTunes. And then also I think virtual reality sucks. I tried the uh, HTC and it's stupid. <laughs> so is this, I think you're going you to lose this bet. You sent out a tweet saying virtual reality is blowing my mind. I now see the light. I saw that tweet from you. Like yeah. three months ago. Yeah, I don't take it back. I it's stand by it. so dumb. Virtual reality is so dumb. All right. Did you, you try the HTC one where you put it on your head? I tried the uh, the Vive with... The Vive, yeah. That's uh, I think it was At Valve. Adam's Lab? With, what was that? At Adam's Lab? No, a different lab. Okay. With, uh, with Valve software running and, on it. And you were really demos. that blown away? I was very impressed. Maybe, maybe I can just have... I have better long-term vision than you do. Maybe I can see the potential. No, no. It's This is one of those things where it's a hype cycle in Silicon Valley. And sadly, the 
benefit to the consumer has to be an order of magnitude better than what they're already experiencing for it to ever get adopted. And that comes on both a couple fronts. One, on the application front and that they have to enjoy it at least 10x or, or greater. And then it also comes on the comfort and wearability and maintenance and setup and everything else that goes with owning a virtual reality system. And sadly, we're all going to realize that it's much like the Wii and it was fun for the first five games of Wii Bowling that I played. But then guess what? It ends up in a drawer. Just like 3D TV. Well, here's here's what I think you're going to miss, though. Here's what I think you're missing. And Dari is giving the, like, hands up. Fuck? I don't know what you're talking about. So, Twilight Princess. So, yeah, Zelda on Wii was great. So but. here's the difference. Here's the difference if we're looking at purely the entertainment applications, say restricted to video games, is that the Wii required entirely new types of games to be created, which basically were reminiscent of early Nintendo sports games. I mean, they're very uh, different from the games that are currently blockbusters. But what if you take virtual reality and simply use that to enhance the most popular first-person shooter games and Call of Duty and so forth, which I don't think is that much of a stretch. I don't think that's a hard sell. I think that is substantially better than what is currently available. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I think it's it's a pretty... Well, There, I would say there's a couple different camps in the virtual reality space. There's one that thinks it's going to be accessory for gaming, and there's the other one that says it's like... We're going to be watching movies like that. We're going to sit, sit around watching the Super Bowl. You know, everyone will have one. We're at a Super Bowl party. <laughs> We're just like wearing headsets and trying to cram freaking nachos underneath the mask. <laughs> like that's that's a real thing. People are saying that kind of stuff. And I, I I I believe that the maintenance and setup and it's just really difficult. You know, see, it's, it's I, like, I don't I don't see the Super Bowl soon. I don't see that type of interaction happening because you're sacrificing an element. I mean, look, we could all watch the freaking Super Bowl at home by ourselves, but we go to a Super Bowl party. Why do we go to a Super Bowl party? Why do we go to a movie theater? Like, there's a communal aspect to it, and there are elements of that experience that are not fully accounted for when I think someone brings up the example of the Super Bowl party uh, and, and using it so that you can, like, stand in the middle of the field and have a fucking crazy 300-pound guy charge at you. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds like fun. Maybe there are uh, permutations on that that I think could work, but with something like Call of Duty, where you're, like, sitting in a basement in your underwear playing it anyway, yeah. I don't think the setup costs... I, th- I think that that is an example. Where do you think, in that case, let's say it is a hype cycle, mm-hmm. what is the landscape of VR look like in three years, five years? Is it, has it just been abandoned? Well, I think there's obviously a lot of money is going into game development and app development right now for, uh, in, in VR, like, you know, tens of, if not hundreds of millions of dollars from some of the top companies. But it is, it's one of those things where um, if consumers don't demand this hardware and it doesn't sell through, then those funds are going to quickly dry up. It's a very much chicken and egg thing because you need original content, original experiences, like more so than just, um, you know, a flying whale coming by your head that's in a 30-second demo. Like you need real content that was developed for VR, which is expensive to create. And so, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing, but you need a hell of a lot of eggs. Like you need a lot of great games because if you get in there and you have a mediocre experience... Or just like, ah, oh, my buddy doesn't. I don't have two headsets. We can't play co-op. You know, there's a there's a thousand different use cases where I could describe it. Where 
it ends up frustrating the gamer and they just set it in the corner and they go back to the way old, the way things were. And this has been tried time and time again. I mean, this isn't the first type of, I mean, I had a Nintendo power glove back in the day where I put my hand in the glove and I tried to do different things with it. Do you remember that thing? I do remember it. A little keyboard on the side of it. (laughs) Like we've tried these like devices to kind of augment our gaming experiences. And yet we all still come back to the standard controller because it's easy, because I can toss you one, because we can sit there, we can drink a beer while we're doing it. Like, there's a thousand different little things that you can do that you can't do with these big-ass headsets on. And you need a dedicated room if you're going to walk around with them. You know, like, if you're bumping into furniture and shit. Like, it just, there's so many hurdles to get over here. I just think that those hurdles are going to be a little too high. I do, I will say one thing, one little caveat here. Augmented reality is a is very much different than virtual reality, and that I still think the jury's out. I'm talking about where you put on a pair of glasses that allow you to project at least in your back into your eye the idea of there being little leave, uh, living creatures and different things crawling around your furniture. <laughs> and if you've seen some of this, <laughs> I have. They scare the shit out of me. It scares the shit out of me. <laughs> that is is. But, cool I mean, enough. it's not just that. It's like overlaying things onto reality as you visually experience That's it right. today. That's right. Uh, so that that I, I I haven't written off yet, but the, this idea of virtual reality and and granted, like I I'll be the first to admit I'm wrong if two years from now this is not the case. But I just have this gut feeling, and sometimes I like to be a little bit different than everybody stir else. The stir the pot, yeah, stir the pot. The you have a bet writing on this, do you not? On virtual reality failing, yeah. Don't you, don't you have I haven't a, shorted Facebook or anything. No, do you have a? Don't you oh, have with a, Adam? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm betting a, a neuroscience uh, friend of ours. He's very well known. He has the dude. Is, he's on your podcast. Yeah, he Adam Gazali. He has drank the Kool Aid. He's, he's like, he's the poured the Kool Aid in the water, mixed it, and drank it. Like, now, he's just, hardcore. just as context, this is one of the well, Daria used to work with Adam. It's fair to say, like one of the preeminent neuroscientists in the world. MD, PhD, studies gaming, has developed game, has a lab at UCSF, one of the best regarded in the country, certainly. But with what does that, what how does many that, people? 50 people? No. Something like that. So, I mean, so, I mean, this, this isn't like a homeless guy on the corner of the sandwich board saying VR is coming. I mean, this is, this is a, you have a qualified no, opponent. I, get that. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think that he is a good opponent Um, he's not a technologist. I mean, he's a neuroscientist and he has a dedicated big ass room for virtual reality. So when he goes and plays in virtual reality and I've been in his lab and I've played with his equipment, it is quite fun, but he has a big ass room that he gets to, not everyone has that room. I don't have that room here in New York. Uh, you know, it's, it's a different environment when no, not yet. Yeah. But how specific is your, are your criteria for success or failure, right? So for me, it's very loose. It, it's like if there are fucking rooms all over a given city and then in every city where people can go experience virtual reality, that seems like virtual reality at least is gaining a foothold. I mean, that I, would be some measure of success. That, I think that virtual reality as a form of like laser tag could be really interesting because I actually saw that a week ago and it looked r- pretty fascinating where it's, it had, you know, 10 people in a room, they're all wearing headsets. They could see each other in the virtual world. Monsters would appear. They could run around corners. They could shoot them, things like that. But that's just Scandia fun. That's like mini golf. 
Like that's that's gonna be a, Scandia. <laughs> Scandia's a thing on the West Coast. It's like a mini golf course. Oh, all right. where you go and like ride go karts and play mini golf. Like that's that's the kind of fun that that is. I think that what Adam's talking about is is really this in you know almost every home and it being kind of a, a fixture of your your household. See, I don't think th- I think you're overweighting the entire room experience, which is definitely an enhancement and an improvement over the stationary experience. But I could see people with with immersive sound systems in the headsets themselves. So you have surround sound uh, using the headset in conjunction with the controller and having an incredible reality experience. Yeah, we'll see, dude. I, the, so I'll tell you a story that I probably shouldn't tell. And I think I've mentioned it at one point somewhere, but I was at Google um, and I went to Google X, which is very kind of limited access uh, Google X is where they do all the crazy top secret experiments, all that. Um, I went in there and they had Google Glass, and this is before they announced it. This was this like you know prototype. Everyone's seen this. Uh, it I like, sits in your head and has a little thing. And I somehow talked the Glass team into giving me one of the first prototypes outside of the team. So we had um, I, I I got like you know probably one of the first ten units, and they gave it to me. I had the beta software on it. I had it hooked up to my Android phone. I could see all my text notifications. I could see, you know, it was like the coolest thing if you're in Silicon Valley to have back then because no one had one, you know. I wore it to a party one time. It was stupid. Oh, I remember. I mean, a, fr- a friend of ours showed up at South by Southwest with Google Glass on it. It was just like nerd magnet. Nerd I mean, magnet. just right. throngs of people and surrounding so, her everywhere she went. And so as my wife will tell you, I had mine for like, what, two weeks, something like that? Less than that. And I gave it back to the Glass team. And they were like, what the fuck? Like, everybody wants one of these. Why are you turning this in? They expected me to have it for the next three months and, like, install the beta software. And I'm just like, no one's going to use this. It's, like, too dorky. It doesn't, it's a, yet another thing I have to charge, which we don't need more of those in our life. And it's heavy. It's bulky. The screen display. Like, I just didn't understand it. And, you know, that was kind of, like, my gut consumer product person's take on it. And I ended up just abandoning it, and I feel the same way about virtual reality. Yeah, only time will tell. I don't think I don't think it'll take that much time either. I mean, I think there's so many big announcements and launches coming up soon that, I mean, within the the next year to eighteen months, I feel like we should have a pretty good idea. Yeah, of what's going to fly or not fly. Oh, what's what is at stake? What's at stake in the bet uh, is a we, bottle. Your, your of bet with Adam Habiki. Was it thirty year? Yeah, it requires a, a trip to Japan to buy a bottle of Habiki 30-year-aged whiskey, which is you can't find in the United States. They don't import it to the United States. That's, that, a good, that's the bet between the two of us. That's a good bet. It's a, it's a good bet. That's it's a win-win because I'm going to help him drink some of it. Have to give it to him. <laughs> but it, it should be fun. It's, it's going to be... Uh, you know, I, I think that even if I lose the bet, uh, I'll be pleasantly... I'll be actually pretty impressed and happy because if they come out with a few titles where I'm just blown away... I'll be the first to say, you know what, this is going to take off, but uh, I don't know. My gut doesn't tell me so. The jury's out. We'll see. All right. Well, another random show on the books, and uh, you already mentioned the journal. I will tell people, check out the T-shirts. I've never done T-shirts before, and 100% of the proceeds are going to uh, psychedelic research, most likely psilocybin at top universities. I'm not making anything from it whatsoever. Everything is going to uh, most likely senior scientists who are working on very, very fascinating uh, 
applications of compounds that have been neglected that can address potentially some extremely debilitating conditions that have very few options otherwise that have panned out medically speaking so check out the shirts if you like the shirts american apparel what's that american apparel shirts Uh, i'd have to look i i uh, went through is it cotton or blend uh most likely a blend 10 percent i basically i went through i went through all of my own t-shirts and picked out the most comfortable yeah and the designs that i liked and sat down with a uh you know sourcing team and looked at how to make the most comfortable shirts possible. So uh, I'm test driving the prototypes. They're not right like now. made from mushrooms. Like you know, they're not hemp, made from mushrooms. Stuff. They don't disintegrate. You don't take a shower with them and sprout anything. You grind them up and grind, grind them, them up and eat them. That would be pretty amazing. <laughs> but no, sadly, uh, four hour week, out. four hour week dot com forward slash mushroom. Check them out. And uh, you can find us on the Twitters. If you have anything to correct or to say or to add, And I feel like that's about it. That's it. Thanks for listening. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. And you can find show notes, links to various things that we have mentioned at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, as well as show notes for every other episode and the episodes themselves. And uh, until next time. See you. Thanks for sticking around. Hey, guys. This is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.